If you have your Bibles, please open them to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we'll be in verses 8 through 13. For the previous month, we've been looking at the profile of different people in the Lord's church. So about a month ago, we looked at 1 Timothy chapter 2, and in that sermon, we saw a profile of men whose greatest treasure is Jesus, and women whose greatest treasure is Jesus. And then last Sunday, we looked at the beginning of 1 Timothy chapter 3 and said, what does God have to say about pastors whose greatest treasure is Jesus? And today, as Matt mentioned, it will be deacons. So 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 to 13, is about Jesus treasuring deacons. That is, deacons whose greatest treasure in the universe is J-E-S-U-S. I invite you to look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. I'll be reading from the New American Standard here, the word of the living God. Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine, or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, these men also must also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife, and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and a great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This is God's word. We're going to ask him once again to bless us as we consider this passage. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would especially through these verses show us the heart of Christ the greatest servant, the greatest deacon of all. Please fill us with that heart also. Every one of us. So that we may glorify you by serving your purposes in the world. Fill this church specifically with brothers and sisters who are full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom and who are biblically qualified according to this passage so that we as a church may set them apart in various seasons of their lives to fill the office of deacon for the sake of Christ's honor in this church and to the ends of the earth. Speak, Lord, we're listening. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have seen it in the reading or the way your Bible sets it apart in that passage, but there's three parts to the passage. Male deacons, female deacons, and the reward for all who faithfully serve as deacons. The male deacons are verses 8 to 10, and then in verse 12, the female deacons are verse 11, and the reward for all who faithfully serve as deacons is verse 13. But before we look at those specific qualifications in 1 Timothy chapter 3, I wanted to begin by zooming out and just see a broad biblical theology of God's servants or the word God loves to use, deacons. All Christians are called to be that. Not the office of deacon, that's what 1 Timothy 3 is talking about, but all Christians are called to be God's servants. He even uses the word deacon. 
Yes, there is a special office, the office called deacon along with pastor. Those are the two offices in the local church that should be filled by qualified people, qualified biblically. But in addition to those two offices, the word deacon, which literally means servant, is something that not some Christians should seek to do, but all Christians are called to do. And I want to begin by just showing that all Christians, according to God, are to be, in that sense, deacons. Humble servants toward the Lord and toward His people. In fact, the word for deacon in our passage is used a lot of times in the New Testament not to refer to the office of deacon. That happens three times, twice in our passage, once in Philippians 1. But that same word is used all over the New Testament to speak about Christ followers, the Lord's servants, the Lord's ministers. Before I just share a sampling of that with you, I have an application to ask you. Right at the beginning of the sermon, I want you to know something about yourself. Are you one of these people? And I've just said, all of Christ's followers are called to be this. Here's the application. What tasks, not just in the church, but in life, are beneath you? What are you too good to do? What are you, in, what are you too important for? What task is too small or too low for you to fulfill? Do you constantly find yourself looking for ways to serve other people? Or are you oblivious to the needs of the people around you? Or if you are not oblivious, do you care? Is there anything that you feel like other people should do for you that you're unwilling to do for them? Or at least to do for them with a joyful heart? Well, here's an application that's more specific. I and we are very glad that you are here today. Was the door unlocked when you arrived? Were the lights on when you walked inside? Was the temperature adjusted to an okay degree when you arrived? Is the sound okay? Did the bathrooms have the needed supplies if you've used them? Was the children's area prepared for any who needed to utilize it? Did any senior adult make it here today who depends on a ride to church from a volunteer to get them here because they're unable to drive? Did enough people get here early enough today for you to be undistracted in your worship right now? Can you hear this sermon? Were those preparations adequate? Were the lyrics to the hymns easy enough for you to follow? Those are just a few examples of the many ways that other people have served you today so that we might more easily focus on Christ and His Word. So an application right at the beginning would be, do you feel entitled for others in the church to serve you like that? Or do you see yourself as happy to serve in any way you can to promote Christ's glory in the hearts of other people? Not only in that initial application, maybe an illustration would help. Let's take ourselves out of this building and out of this moment, and let's transport ourselves back to the first century. We're in Ephesus where Timothy was pastoring when he received this letter. Instead of being 2023, you're in the first century, you're in Ephesus, it's Sunday morning, and all the people who have gathered in this little inconspicuous place 
for the worship of the risen Lord Jesus came on the dusty pathways and village roads of Ephesus, would you have been one of the people who was standing near or at the doorway to greet the parishioners and stoop down and wash their soiled feet so that when they came in, they wouldn't have had to be distracted by that. Not only is humble, happy-hearted service the calling of all of God's children, that is the case because it is the heart of Christ who we profess to follow. You see, when the Lord Jesus was burdened with a huge load of care, we've talked about it many times today, that is, dying for our sins, the sinless substitute, dying for unworthy sinners, when he was burdened with that load of care, in fact, beneath the shadow of that cross, the evening before he died, just a few hours removed from the agonies of mutilation by crucifixion, where he would take your sin and my sin upon himself. In that moment, when it was not convenient, when life was not just perfect and everything was just right, our Lord stooped down and washed his disciples' feet. That's his heart. That's what he's like. Nothing was beneath him. The most worthy person in the universe the creator of the far-off galaxies, the object of every angel's praise, was glad to serve others. Even in the most menial ways, it wasn't a show, it wasn't an act. He wasn't looking for anybody's applause or congratulations. That's what he is like. Jesus is a servant. And belonging to that Lord... Belonging to that Savior does something to you. It does something to your heart. The way you view yourself as a happy servant, or a New Testament word, a bond slave, a willing slave, a slave by choice. So the three things I want to say before we look at 1 Timothy 3 and those three things is that Jesus is the greatest deacon of all. All Christians are called to be one of them. And some are set apart, like our passage says, to do the work in the office of deacon. First, Jesus is the deacon par excellence, the servant of God. That's who he is. I don't know if you found it yet to be the playground that it ought to be for the joy of your soul, but meditating on the names of Jesus is rocket fuel for your growth in grace. One of his names is suffering servant. He is the Lord's servant par excellence. The scriptures teach he is the greatest deacon of all. He's the template, he's the plumb line, he's the pattern, he's the prototype. He is what it looks like to glorify God by obeying his will and serving his purposes. When the gospel writers talk about him, the God-man, they say things like this. He did not come, I'm going to quote it with some intentional provocation, using the pronunciation of the original words. When the God-man came, he did not come to be deaconed, that's the word, but to deacon and to give his life as a ransom for many. Not to be served, but to serve. 
In Romans 15, we're, found that he, we're told that he came as a Jew. Christ came as a deacon to the circumcision, a servant to the Jews, on behalf of the truth of God, to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. Why did he come as a deacon? Romans 15, 8. Answer, to confirm God's promises and so that you... Gentiles, non-Jewish people, would glorify God for his mercy. That's why he came as a servant. His name is Suffering Servant 700 years before he was born. The last 20 chapters of the book of Isaiah are filled with five songs about him, and they are called the Servant Songs about the Savior who would come 700 years later. One of the most beautiful descriptions of the Gospel in the entire Bible is about the Lord Jesus humbling Himself. Philippians chapter 2, not regarding equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptying Himself, himself taking the form of a bondservant. Bondservant again is willing slave, happy slave, choosing slavery over so-called freedom. Jesus' life and ministry is a vivid expose that being God's slave is true freedom. So I ask you again, do you have a servant's heart? Do you have a servant's heart? We talk about it sometimes at Grace. Maybe you can remember how to know if you have a servant's heart. The way to know if you have a servant's heart is not by serving people. Jesus even said that it's quite possible to perform many acts of righteousness to be seen by other people. That's not a servant's heart. Pride is the thing in us that covets praise, that wants men's applause. You can do acts of service and not have a servant's heart. How then do you know if you have one? It's how you respond when somebody treats you like one. Is it okay for people to boss you around? Are you cool with people treating you like a servant? Either we have that heart or we're prideful. Either we're entitled and suppose that we deserve for everybody else to do everything for us, or we're glad-hearted servants who realize that there's more joy derived in giving than receiving. Jesus is the greatest servant of all. Sitting down, Mark 9, Jesus calls the twelve to him, and he said, if anybody wants to be first, he shall be last and deacon of all. He calls all of his people to follow him in happy-hearted servanthood. In Matthew 20, he called the disciples to himself and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. You know that their great men, great men, exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your deacon, your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be deaconed, but to deacon, to give his life as a ransom for many. Matthew 23, the greatest among you shall be your deacon. John 12, if anyone deacons me, 
he must follow me. If anybody serves me, he must follow me so that where I am, my servant, same word, will be also, if anyone serves, same word, me, the Father will honor him. Hebrews 6, God's not unjust to forget your work and the love you've shown toward his name in having deaconed, served, ministered, and still ministering to the saints. So all Christians are called to be like Christ, and Christ is a servant. If you don't want to serve, I say to you out of love, you don't want to follow Jesus. But as we close this broad look at Jesus is the greatest servant, and we're all called to be one, before we close this broad look and look at this few specifics of 1 Timothy 3, 8 to 13, there's a vitally important emphasis to make. Namely, that when God calls you to himself, and when God gives you to his son, that's what becoming a Christian is. He gives you to Jesus. He puts you in Christ. That's what becoming a Christian is. You no longer belong to you. You belong to another. When God gives you to His Son as a trophy of His sovereign saving grace, He invites you to be His happy eternal slave. But here's the important distinction about serving Him. He doesn't need you. We don't serve Him because He has a deficiency that we need to fill. We don't contribute something to him that he otherwise wouldn't have. No, God is not served, Acts 17, by human hands as though he needed anything. It's been said, well, many times before, God does not need your good works, but your neighbor does. God could do all that work without you. He doesn't need us, but he invites us into the joy of serving him for a multiplicity of reasons. One of them is so that we can see Him working. He could do it without us. But the joy of joining God in what God is doing for His glory in the lives of other people, that's one reason. And another reason is because in God's wonderful sovereignty, He's ordained not only the ends, but also the means. And if you want to know one of the best ways to grow in your faith, and this takes us to our passage, it's actually the reward in verse 13. One of the most surefire, rock-solid, watertight, definite, God-will-do-it ways to grow in your faith. If you want to grow in your faith, I'm telling you one of the ways God has guaranteed you can grow in your faith. Seek to make other people happy in Jesus. Serve other people. Lay down your life for other people. And the reason that's a surefire way is because you cannot outgive God. So who are you serving? Who are you deaconing? What are their names? We're all called to be servants. I said there's three parts of today's passage that's about the office of deacon. Just wanted to make sure we had the right understanding of what we're talking about before we look at these qualifications and the three parts are male deacons female deacons and the reward of all who faithfully serve as deacons first male deacons that's verses 8 to 10 and then verse 12 if you look at verses 8 to 13 and you can count you'll see that there are 13 total qualifications listed for those who serve in the office of deacon 
in a local church. Nine of those are for the men, verses 8 to 10 and 12. Four of those are for the women, verse 11. The male deacons in verse 8 are first to be men of dignity. Do you see that designation? That means at its heart they're worthy of respect. That kind of dignity. Put another way, their way of life is attractive to other Christians because they exude Christ. Following that initial qualification in verse 8, there are three negative qualifications. Dignified, not, not, not. Not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not fond of sordid gain. You see those in verse 8. Not being double-tongued is pretty obvious, isn't it? It preaches itself. They're not insincere people. They are, conversely, men of their word. They don't live in the land of doublespeak. They don't say one thing to one person and another thing to another person based on what they think people want to hear. They're the same. Integrity. It's the beautiful attribute of Christian integrity. But not only are they not double-tongued, we're told in verse 8, they're also not to be addicted to much wine. Now, a wooden rendering of that Greek phrase would be something like this. Not devoted to wine. It's touching on the sober reality that sobriety is essential for Christian living. All who serve in the two offices of the church must be devoted. And if you're devoted, that means you're totally given. You can't be devoted to wine and devoted to something else. This is the essential attribute of being devoted to Christ. Wine and alcohol, as we know, can have a hold on its users rather than its users having a hold on it. This again, I said it last week, is not a strict prohibition from using alcohol. Not addicted to much wine is not the same as saying do not at all use wine. Are there many good reasons that many Christians ought to be practicers of total abstinence from alcohol? Yes. Later in this same letter, though, Paul tells Timothy in chapter 5, use a little wine for your stomach. So the qualification in verse 8 is a standard by which all who serve as deacons must live. That is, they must not be mastered by alcohol, not devoted to it. They're also not to be fond of sordid gain in verse 8. If you put that positively, it would be to say they have the beautiful character quality of contentment. Just like he's not addicted to wine in the previous qualification, here he's not addicted to anything except Jesus. He's content because he has all in Christ. When Paul speaks about this very same quality in chapter 6, he explains that the godly person is content with the most basic needs of life, food and covering. That's what he says. So this quality portrays a person whose incentive to serve God's people is God, not money, not prestige. Fifth qualification is in verse 9, they hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. This is the picture of a happy man. His conscience is clear. When it comes to the ethical demands of the gospel, how he must live, how one who belongs to Christ must live, this man is at peace. 
His believing and his living. Oh, to be like this. His believing and his living have a very small gap between them. His life is consistent with his profession that Jesus Christ is his Lord. When he reads or hears scripture, he joyfully embraces the truth of God's word as the standard by which he lives. The word holding at the beginning of verse nine means clinging. This is most important to him, the faith of Christ. In other words, he's unwilling to live out of compliance with the Lordship of Jesus. He keeps short accounts with God. Like John Bunyan's principle of life, if my life is fruitless, it doesn't matter who praises me. If my life is faithful, it doesn't matter who criticizes me. This man is holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. He's tightly tethered to Christ. And then verse 10 says something to the whole church. This deacon prospect must be tested. One commentary I consulted pointed out that the whole church here is being warned against hastiness. Just like with a prospective elder, we don't lay hands on a man too quickly, lest he become conceited about overseers in the previous passage. Here we're told that he must be adequately examined, tested. This is precisely why every person who is recommended as a deacon today has been a member of this church for some time, in most cases years, and somebody has sat down with them and talked about or talked with them in some measure about these diaconal qualifications. Testedness. Verse 10 says they also must be above reproach. This is a person who after examination appears to be what we thought they were. The more the metal gets tested, the more it goes into the fire, the more it comes out, the more pure you realize that it is. This character quality of being beyond reproach. They don't live with skeletons in their closet. Their own conscience is clean, verse 9. After evaluating them, the whole congregation shares in this clean conscience. Yes, we see that they are beyond reproach. To quote the summary of deacons given in the book of Acts, these people prove themselves to be full of the Holy Spirit full of wisdom. Verse 12, just like last week, the eighth qualification is the husband of only one wife. Just like last week, we said, this is faithfulness. This is monogamy. Just like an overseer, pastor, elder must be the husband of one wife, so also this male deacon has the solid character quality of monogamy, said no to everyone to say yes if married to his wife. Paul is saying that if this man is married, his testedness includes his faithfulness to his spouse. And then verse 12, the last qualification for the male deacons, a good manager of their children and their own household. Now this isn't a requirement that a deacon be married and have kids. He doesn't have to be a father to be eligible to be a deacon, but if he is one, he understands the order of importance. He knows that if he's not faithful at home, he would be a pretender if he were put into any office of responsibility and administration in the church. He's not two people in two places. He's the same man all the time. His attention and energy, his prayers and discipleship, his humble-hearted 
servant leadership flows first and foremost to the people in his home, they see the beautiful characteristic of Christ's lowliness and humility and service in his character more than anybody else ever sees it, so that when he is put into that office in the church, it makes sense, especially even to them. Verse 11 takes us to what I said earlier is the female deacons or deaconesses. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temporal, uh, temperate, faithful in all things. There's four qualifications given, but I'll summarize the meaning of each of those qualifications and then tell you why I believe this is talking about deaconesses, not the wives of male deacons. First, look at the qualifications. Verse 11 the first of their four qualifications is exactly the same as the first of the male deacons, that is, dignity. They must be dignified. Again, it's the exact same qualification given in verse 8 about the male deacons. Worthy of respect. Not because she's pompous and proud and perceives herself to be above everybody, respect me. But the congregation naturally relates to her with dignity because of her Christ-like character particularly in her humble-hearted, happy-hearted service to the Lord and his people. But the sisters, to be eligible for the diaconate, also must not be, verse 11, malicious gossips. They're not, a, they're not immune to the sin of gossip. But in this fallen world, uh, pardon me, not only are they not immune, the men also are not immune to the sin of malicious gossip. But in a fallen world, the Bible seems to lay an emphasis on the devastating results in a church of ladies being given to this particular besetting sin. Can men sin this way? Yes. Do they? Yes. But sisters seem to have an unusual accent mark levied against them when it comes to warnings against gossip. These sisters instead use their tongue not to tear others down, but to express appropriate ways to serve those in need. They have a care and concern for others' well-being. They want to see every person take one more step closer to Jesus, and their mouth exemplifies that. Gossip is saying about a person what we would never say to a person. Even worse than the content is the motive, tearing down instead of building up. So positively, these ladies are marked by use of their tongue that insists on trying to build others up. It's a positive quality on the other side of the negative prohibition. They're also temperate and faithful in all things, verse 11. Temperate is, they're happy to practice self-denial for the sake of godliness. She would purposefully limit herself from overindulgence in anything, as our covenant puts it, that might jeopardize her own or another's faith. Tempered. There are parameters. She's happy to live within them because she wants others' faith to be built up. Finally, she's faithful in all things. This is so similar to the quality for the male deacons that's listed in verse 10. She's dependable and trustworthy. We're looking in verse 11 at a woman who isn't trying to do as little as possible to keep up appearances or a reputation in the church. 
She's actually helpful. This is a person who's seeking to serve in any and every way she can to see the kingdom of Christ advanced in your heart and in Christ's church. The pith of her character is braided with this solid cord of faithfulness. Now, those are the qualifications, and then there's the incentive, the promise given in verse 13. But because we live in the day we live in, I'm going to take just a few minutes to say why I believe verse 11 is not talking about the wives of male deacons, but rather deaconesses. And the reason I'm going to take these minutes is because many of us, all of your elders, grew up in congregations that didn't see it this way. There are at least four reasons that I believe that's what Paul is talking about. The words in the verse, the immediate context, church history, and church polity. The words in the verse. I'm aware that the ESV, King James, and CSB all say their wives. So if you have an ESV in your lap this morning, it doesn't say women, it says their wives. I'm aware of that. At the same time, other reputable translations like the New American Standard, the NIV, and others say women. If it says their wives, it functionally eliminates the possibility of reading it as deaconesses. It imposes a reading that it must be the wives of the male deacon spoken of in the previous and next verse. So to begin with, we can see there's disagreement among the translators. But I said the first argument is what I call the words in the verse. What I mean is the immediate context exegetically requires us to look at similar words used in the same passage in similar ways. There are two things in the immediate context of this verse that lead me to conclude that Paul's referring not to the wives of male deacons, but to deaconesses. First, verse 8, the word likewise, is the same word in verse 11, the women likewise. So if you look at verse 8 and you ask the obvious question, Likewise to whom? Well, verse 8 says, like the elders. Likewise, verse 8, the male deacons must be men of dignity. If you just keep reading to verse 11 and you bump into the exact same word, women likewise, we should ask the exact same question. Likewise to whom? The antecedent is evidently the male deacons of verse 8. In other words, like the deacons of verse 8, should be like something, so also the women in verse 11 must be like something. And the antecedent is the deacons. That's the first part of a contextual argument. The second part of that contextual argument is that the qualifications are essentially the same. So you get qualifications in verses 8, 9, and 10, then you get the women likewise, and you get the exact same qualification first, dignity. So just like these deacons must be dignified, these deacons must be dignified. It's almost the identical qualification at the end as well, which I think Paul is saying all of these apply in terms of character to both male and female deacons. The third contextual argument is that Paul clearly continues the qualifications for the male deacons in the next verse. So 8 to 10, men. 11 women, 12 clearly men, husband of one wife. So he's talking about deacons here and here, presumably he's talking about them there as well. That's the contextual argument. And then in the broader context, many Bible 
interpreters understand Romans chapter 16 to be talking about a sister who was a deaconess. Her name is Phoebe in the church at Centria. Diaconon tes ecclesias, deacon of the church. And that's a woman. Added to that contextual argument and the use of the word likewise, and the fact that the word women does not necessarily have to be translated wives, another strong argument comes from the exegetical grounds of serious Bible scholars like F.F. Bruce and Tom Schreiner, the International Critical Commentary, the Holman New Testament Commentary, the Bible Knowledge Commentary, current seminary professors of all kinds of denominational stripes like Denny Burke and Richard Gaffin, Jeremy Pierre, Sean Wright, Greg Allison, John MacArthur, Tim Keller, we could go on. So there's the word in the verse, I think women versus wives. There's the context in the verse. But then I said there's church history. The we ain't never done it that way before argument is a pretty hard sell when it comes to women deacons. Yes, we have. From the second century, when some of the apostles may still have been alive, Clemens of Alexandria referred to deaconesses in, quote, all the churches. In the fourth century, Jerome, the church historian, talks about deaconesses, quote, generally being found in the churches. John Calvin in the time of the Reformation, yep. Charles Spurgeon, yep. John Smith and Thomas Helways, the leaders of the Baptist movement in the 1600s, spoke of the church having power to elect, approve, and ordain her own deacons, both men and women. In the Southern Baptist life, the very first president of the Southern Baptist Convention, William Johnson, spoke of deaconesses being, quote, particularly useful and exceedingly valuable. The second president of the Southern Baptist Convention spoke of deaconesses existing in the primitive, that is, first century Bible New Testament churches, and of all the historians, like the church fathers and other writers, referring to deaconesses frequently and familiarly. There can be therefore no doubt as to the matter of fact. It is conceded on all hands that deaconesses were employed and that constant resort was had to their ministry in the first churches of Christ. B.H. Carroll, the founder of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, seven, uh, pardon me, six deacons appointed in his church in 1877. J.R. Graves, the initiator of the Baptist newsletter, later became known as the Baptist and Reflector, said there is no good reason why saintly women should not fill the office of deaconess. In fact, they often perform those duties without the office or the name. Edward Dargan, W.A. Criswell, I could go on. So there's the argument from the passage, there's the argument from the context, there's the argument from church history, and from church polity. I'll close here. It's a pretty hard sell to suggest that Paul is talking about qualifications for the wives of male deacons when he's completely silent about such qualifications for the wives of male elders. Now, this is an argument from silence both ways, but it's worth mentioning, I believe, that if Paul is giving qualifications as some translations impose us to read it, and I think wrongly, if Paul is giving qualifications for the wives of male deacons, then it would stand to reason that their qualification is because their potential influence in the church, and whether we like it or not, the wives of the elders stand to have a significant, significantly greater influence in the life of the church than the wives of deacons if they function biblically. 
spiritual leadership, spiritual service. It seems incredibly unlikely in light of the great pains that Paul takes to list the qualifications one by one. By the way, there are 30 separate qualifications. He's not trying to save space. And in all 30 of those, he mentions nothing about the wives of the elders. It doesn't seem to me that he would be speaking about the wives of the male deacons. Well, what's the reward for those who serve faithfully as deacons? In the office of deacon, if they're biblically qualified and they serve faithfully, verse 13 tells us their reward. Now let me say this clearly before I go to this very last verse. If a church does not have a male-only, biblically qualified eldership, I think they would be foolish to have a co-ed diaconate. Because the deacons in those churches, for better or worse, serve as pseudo-elders. But when there is a biblically qualified male-only eldership, I stand as exhibit A of a Christian whose life has been richly benefited by belonging to a church that is being served by both male and female deacons. What reward is Jesus very excited to give them? Verse 13, for those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and a great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. High standing, great confidence. High standing means appropriate respect for the work they perform. Now, moms and dads, I'm going to talk to you for just a second, and I'm really talking through you to your kids. So kids, you can listen to Pastor Jordan right now. I don't know who your mom and dad point to in this room when they say, if you want to follow Christ really well, watch so-and-so. I would point to at least 14 people who were either just recommended or are already serving as deacons in this church. Boys and girls, if you want to be more like Jesus, ask your mom and dad who the deacons are of this church. Watch their life. Talk to them. And I have great confidence to believe you will become more like Jesus if he's in you and you watch them. A high standing means appropriate respect. They're honored among the church, not with applause, but with honor. That's their high standing. We aspire to be like them because they show us something beautiful about Jesus in their lowly service. But it says they also get, and this is the end of the passage, a great confidence in the faith. A great confidence in the faith. Now, this isn't unique to deacons. This isn't something special they get that other Christians don't get, but they definitely get it. And God wants to remind them that they get it. Great confidence in the faith, because as I said earlier, if you want to grow in your faith, give yourself away. You're not made to be a sponge, but a pipeline. God intends to flow through you, not to stop at you. Surprise, surprise, we're not the end of all God's great saving purposes. He wasn't finished when he got to us. We're a little bitty part of what he's doing for his great cosmic glory. And deacons get it. That I'm just here for a little while. And I want to use the vapor of my life for the glory of Christ, however I may, particularly in serving. If you want to grow in your faith, give yourself away. 
That's what deacons do. And so God naturally promises to them, you get great confidence in your faith because the way to grow in your faith, not exclusively, but this is indispensable. This isn't the only way, but it is an integral way. The way to grow in your faith is to know that you can't outgive God because you've been trying for a long time. And the more you give, the more he blesses. The more you serve, the more he fills. The more you pour out, the more he pours in. The more you do things that only the eye of God ever sees and nobody else applauds you for, the more you receive the sense of his smile over your life. Because God's the great benefactor. We're always the beneficiaries. We're not serving him because he needs anything. The more we seek to serve him, the more he pours into our lives. God flows into the lives of those who are constantly seeking ways to flow out into the lives of others. So the applications, the applications, brothers and sisters, please hear these. You cannot be a Christian. I'm not talking about a deacon. I'm talking about a Christian. You cannot be a Christian if you will not follow in the footsteps of a Christ who is the greatest servant of all. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful singing. Psalm 100 is a command. If you don't want to follow that Jesus, then you don't want the Christianity that He provides. Not only can you not be a Christian, I say to my fellow elders and Pastors, you can't be a, a pastor if you're unwilling to be a servant. Colossians 1.7, the pastor of the church at Colossae is described as a bondservant. His name is Epaphras. In 1 Timothy 4, the pastor of the church at Ephesus, his name is Timothy, is described as a good diakonos of Christ Jesus. In Ephesians 3, 6, and 7, Paul, who was the pastor of the church at Ephesus before Timothy, described himself as a diakonos according to the gift of God's grace. You can't be a pastor if you're unwilling to be a servant. So you can't be a Christian, you can't be a pastor unless you're willing to be a servant. So Grace Church, we should thank God that nine names were recommended. We should seek God's face, pray, test according to this passage. This isn't rubber stamp. This is Bible 101. But we should pray with thankfulness that there's constantly among us a churn of new names that elders can recommend as prospective deacons. Jesus is doing that. We should pray for those people who were recommended today in anticipation of how we should respond to that recommendation at our members meeting in April. And then finally, look around and see if there's more who should be appointed to needs that are not yet being served, opportunities for Christ's glory that are not yet being met through deacons and deaconesses in our body. I don't know if you've noticed, but we're not meeting in Uptown right now. Are there any ministries that for the past several months could have been happening if a deacon had their eyes fixed and their ears attuned to those ministries of mercy or evangelism? 
Is there a teenager who grew up in this church? I mean, they were in utero when they started coming and they're now in their teens and nobody has ever discipled them. Outside their parents, which is God's primary means, but if that's all God wants to use, use, then churches are obsolete. Is there any teenager here who's never sat down with a Bible open and another Christian in this church? Maybe a deacon could help with that. What about helping households with financial literacy so that they can be better at kingdom of God stewardship? What is your, what is your strategy for kingdom investment? Your checkbook reflects that. Your bank statement reflects that. What about visiting sick and shut-ins and hospitals and widows? I could go on. Not one of those areas currently has a deacon serving it. Might there be other areas? And might there be qualified people? And we could connect the Velcro and this church could see what happened in Acts 6. Do you know when some ladies weren't getting food and the proto-embryo diaconate started serving that need? Go read the next verse the gospel started to rapidly expand because you cannot give God. The Son of Man, the King of glory, heaven's favorite, the one before whom every single knee will bow and to whom every single tongue will confess, He's the Lord of the universe. That one did not come here to this earth to be served but to deacon and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, make this church more like Jesus and fill this church with brothers and sisters who are biblically qualified to serve as deacons so that the church will be built up and the gospel will expand near and far until he returns. We pray this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.